Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. We are reading this morning from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. I believe this is page 613 in your pew Bibles. If not, it will get you really close. I looked this morning and can't remember exactly, but that will get you. I I am right. Okay. So this morning, and I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles close because I'm going to read from other portions of Isaiah. And I'm just reading and preaching about some things from Isaiah this morning uh, that draw from some selected passages. So this is just one of them, and then we'll, we will read together in other portions of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Let me pause and say this is a prophecy, it's a foretelling of Christ. So this is a description of the one to come. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit. In his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Some strong echoes from Romans chapter 3. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let's pray. Holy God, we read your word this morning. The echo of a prophet from long ago that writes about a Savior that is to come. And that Savior has come and He died and rose again for our sins and our transgressions and has ascended into the heavens, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Lord, and we thank you today for this. We asked that the next few moments of time you would bring the writings of Isaiah to life through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
A major theme of the Old Testament is that Israel is God's covenant people. This is one of the overarching ideas in the Old Testament. Israel collectively is, they are the people of God. This translates into the church in the New Testament, but in the the reading of the Old Testament, Israel, they are the people of God through a covenant. But the Israelites in the Old Testament repeatedly break God's law over and over and over. It's a cycle of revival and backsliding and repentance and revival and backsliding and repentance over and over throughout the Old Testament. Their two major sins that they are guilty of are idolatry. They are constantly drawn to worship idols throughout the Old Testament. They build idols from the time of Moses on. They are just so easily led into idolatry. And that leads them to commit crimes of social injustice. It's a term that we've heard a lot the last couple, three, four years, but Israel really is guilty of committing some serious violations in the eyes of God. The Israelites, the covenant people of God, find themselves sacrificing their children, their babies, to idols, burning them to death on an altar. That's how far away from God they become. So the prophets, and Isaiah is a prophet, and there are many others, the bulk of the last part of the Old Testament is made up of the prophets. The prophets are constantly calling God's people back to covenant relationship. So in the year 933 B.C., after the death of Solomon, who is the third king of Israel, Saul is the first king, and then King David, and then David's son takes the throne, After the death of Solomon, Israel revolted against the leadership of Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, and Israel is split into two kingdoms. Israel is in the north. We talk about Israel in the Old Testament, but Israel is actually the northern section, the northern kingdom, with Samaria as its capital. And Judah is in the south. Judah is made up of two tribes, and it has Jerusalem as its capital city. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you have, you'll read about kings, and Israel would have a king, but Jerusalem is no longer part of Israel. It's part of Judah. And so Judah would have a king, or Jerusalem would have a king. And it's the southern section of this kingdom that has been split into 200 pieces. And after this, Israel in the north would last for about 200 years before it falls into the hands of the Assyrians. And Judah in the south would last roughly 350 years before falling into the hands of the Babylonians. So both kingdoms, because of their idolatry, God delivers them into heathen, foreign hands, and they go into captivity. And it is in this captivity that God uses men who are prophets to speak to God's covenant people, to call them back to repentance. And Isaiah is one of these prophets. So in Isaiah chapter 6, this is likely the most well-known verse and chapter in Isaiah, says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on His throne, the train of His robe filling the temple. 
Now, Israel had prospered under King Uzziah. Israel was at the top at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. So Isaiah starts his ministry with Israel being at the top. He sees a vision of the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of the robe filled the temple. But over the years during Isaiah's ministry, Israel goes into steady decline. And so Isaiah writes about how God will judge the heathen nations for their idolatry, but then he also shows how God calls them to find salvation in Israel, and in particular, how the nations of the earth will find salvation in a future king of Israel, that king being Jesus Christ. So there's, there's dual prophecy going on here. Isaiah's writing saying, the, the heathen nations of the world in our time will find salvation in Israel, but there is a future king of Israel coming. One that is in the throne of David, who all the nations of the world will find salvation. So the book of Isaiah is just like the rest of the Old Testament in that ultimately the book of Isaiah is about Jesus. Jesus said, search the Scriptures. This is in John, I think it's 7. Search the Scriptures, for in them you have life, he's speaking of the Old Testament, and they are they which testify of me. In other words, Jews who read your Scriptures, if you really see what it's about, you'll see that it's actually talking about me. Isaiah is no exception. It is prophesying about the future Messiah. Now, Isaiah uh, is, there's... It's a big book. It's one of the largest books in the Bible. Uh, a lot of people divide it up into three sections. Chapters 1 through 39, they say, is, is one section. Some people even say, different author, like one man wrote this, and then 40 through 55, another man wrote this, and 56 after, a third person. Uh, a lot of views will say, well, there's at least two. Uh, I, I hold to the traditional view that Isaiah the prophet wrote the entire book. Often the reason why it's cited that he couldn't have is because he refers to events that are well into the future, even not too long after he dies. My argument for that would be that God is able to inspire prophets to write about events that are not yet to come. But for people who study the scriptures as literature and say, well, he God doesn't operate that way, that's not possible, then yes, it would absolutely require a belief in two authors. I hold to the traditional view uh, that he writes it, uh, albeit throughout the course of his life. I think there is a, quite a stretch of time uh, that he's writing this book. So the focus this morning, and uh, for the little bit of time that we have to talk about this, I'm going to look at the second part of Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, and draw some ideas from there. So the, we, all, we could call it the second book of Isaiah. It's usually how it's divided. That second, at least, section of Isaiah is a collection of poems and songs that are centered around this mysterious figure that has been referred to as the suffering servant. So if you get into Isaiah at all, you're going to encounter this figure called the Suffering Servant. It's actually, it's a title, capital S's, Suffering Servant, is this man that the poems and the songs in the second section of Isaiah refer to. So when we get here to this second section, we find ourselves 
about 600 years before Christ lives. And Israel has now been in captivity for 70 years under Babylon. They've been carried away to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, Baghdad is where they go. And they are now a small remnant, no more than 15,000 people. And they have to trek across the desert sands to go back and rebuild the city of God that is in ruins. And, I mean, think about it. 70 years. There are men, the Bible says, there are men who go back for the rebuilding of the temple that when the temple is rebuilt and dedicated, as old men, they remember from their youth the first temple. The Bible says they wept. They remembered that the, the splendor of Solomon's temple, the second temple does not have that splendor. The presence of God is there, but it's not the ornate, multi-billion dollar temple that Solomon's temple was. So there's, there's men who would no doubt have been children, young people, teenagers at the oldest, who now go back and are old men that remember the temple. And so when they get back, you have to think about what their mindset is. That surely God has forgotten us. We, we broke our covenant with Him. We've suffered for 70 years. I spent my entire life under Babylonian captivity. And I'm just now able to get back home. I mean, think about where you lived when you were 15 years old. And that's, that's home and you're carried away captive somewhere else. And not until you're an old man or woman do you get to go back home at the end of your life. We've transgressed against the one true God. Surely we are no longer bound by God's covenant love. Surely God has forgotten us. So the prophet uses brilliant imagery in Isaiah to say that just as a mother doesn't forget about her child, and just as a man doesn't forget about his lover, neither has God forgotten about you. Interesting, the, the, the correlation between men and women that Isaiah used there. Uh, it, not a lot's changed in 2,600 years. Uh, he's saying, what, are, what, what drives men and women? He says, just as men and women remember these, so God remembers you. And so the writer begins, this is chapter 40, the writer begins the second part of Isaiah saying, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. That's how the second part opens. It's God is being very transparent. I'm here to comfort you. I'm here to speak tenderly to you. I'm here to forgive your iniquities. So the founder of the Persian Empire... King Cyrus is the focus of what is written much about in this second part of Isaiah. Cyrus is a key figure. So unlike the barbaric Babylonians, when Cyrus would go in and conquer a kingdom, he would respect the culture and traditions and religions of the native people. The Romans did very much similar things when they would conquer. Maybe they took their cue from history and said, I'm going to go in and take over your land and your city, but if you don't give me a lot of grief and don't fight back against me, I'll let you to continue to practice your religion and worship your God. That's fine. Um, just don't rebel. And so this is what Cyrus does. He respects cultures and traditions and religions. 
And so when Judah was captured by the Babylonians, later on Cyrus would overthrow the Babylonians. And thus allowing the people of God. This is how the people of God get to worship their God again, is because the Persians come in, and this is, uh, this is not just recorded in the Bible, it's also recorded in history. You can read the historical account of, of the Persians coming in, capturing the Babylonians, overthrowing them, and then Cyrus says, you can go back to worshiping your God again. And so the prophet would write about Cyrus in Isaiah 45, and he uses messianic language telling us that God anointed Cyrus to subdue the nations. So it's very messianic language regarding Cyrus. But we know that Cyrus was not the Messiah. There was another that all of this pointed to. So this is how the Bible often works in the Old Testament. There is a double fulfillment of prophecy. We see it fulfilled immediately in the context of their time, and then it also is going to be echoed down through the ages in history. This is exactly what happens in Isaiah 45, because we know Cyrus is not the Messiah, but he's talked about in that language. So there was another that all of this pointed to that was to come, that would fulfill all the messianic promises and reveal himself as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. At the same time that Jesus the King was being revealed, another revelation was taking place, and that was the revealing of the identity of this man who is the suffering servant of Isaiah. So within the writings of chapters 40 through 45, tells us of the suffering servant and is told through a series of songs. There are four of them. The last of the four songs is what I read this morning, and it's the one that if you've been around church very much, you've heard this. Most Christmas seasons in church, Isaiah 53 is read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. What a lot of times people don't realize is that this is one of four songs, the last of four songs, that reveal and point toward the suffering servant. But it's not the only one. There are others. The first of the songs begins in chapter 42. And so I'll, I'll ask you to turn there. We can, we can read this together. Just nine verses of Scripture. This is the first song. He says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you from the hand, by the hand, and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, and not, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, 
The book of Isaiah is quoted 65 times in the New Testament. This is why I often talk about if you really want to know your New Testament, you need to know your Old Testament. They just work hand in hand. So Isaiah is quoted 65 times, but many more times than that, what Isaiah writes is echoed, especially in the Apostle Paul. So look at verse 6 and 7. And then let's think about what Paul teaches about how we receive the gospel. So in verses 6 and 7, it says, I will give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So now this metaphor for light comes in. And now it's not just going to give light. He's going to open the eyes that are blind. So there are people that are blind who are going to receive healing to be able to see the light to bring prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. So we've got this metaphor of light, darkness, blindness, all of this. Now, hear how Paul talks about how we receive the gospel. 2 Corinthians. In their case, the God of this world, lowercase g, referring to Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul echoes this language, light, darkness, blindness. This is why our world is descending into this hellish dystopian nightmare. You look at things that are going on and you say it's absolute lunacy and absurdity, and it is. But this is how Satan works. Darkness, blind, they're blind. They can't, they don't see the light. This is what the gospel does. The gospel comes in and reorients people's priorities and people's ideas and how people live and how what people value is through the gospel, but it comes through. The revelation of the light of the gospel. That's what Isaiah is talking about. In verse 1 in chapter 42, the, all this language in this song is referring to the suffering servant in verse 1. So in verse 6, the covenant is being given through this servant. In verse 7, the gospel is being foretold. So in Isaiah's time, he's foretelling the gospel. In our time, we're on the other side of history. We're on the other side of the river. It's already happened. Jesus Christ has come. Isaiah has been fulfilled. The suffering servant has been made manifest among all of us. So we live on the other side of the promise. We have the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. That message of the gospel is absolutely transformational. I am thankful for what God has done thus far in all of our lives. I know that none of us are perfect. None of us have achieved, have arrived. We all have indwelling sin, if we're honest. We all have things that, you know, I, I think about, I have to be careful not to go off on a rabbit trail and a tangent here. But so much in the church the last few years, the last 30 years, has been this idea of leadership within the church. Leadership has just, it's been corporate America that has just been infiltrated into the church. And we expect preachers and pastors to be this type of religious CEO executive, to be a great leader. 
I think that has done much damage in the kingdom. Uh, yes, pastors are to lead. I'm not arguing that. But all of us are so burdened with imperfections that, like, I want to try to lead somebody else. I can't even get me to do what I want to do. Like, whenever I'm trying to influence somebody else, that's, a bit, like, that's the thing right now. I want to be an influencer in my society. I want to be a, a leader. I see much more language in the New Testament about Jesus wanting all of His people to be followers much more than He wants them to be leaders. If we would just simply follow Christ, I think this is the model of leadership that Paul sets forth, because Paul doesn't really talk about this a lot, but where he does use this language, what he says is, follow me as I follow Christ, because ultimately we're all following Christ together. If we can just be Christ followers, we'll accomplish what he wants. So I'm thankful for what God has done thus far. Every single one of us, as imperfect as we are, we are all portraits of grace. I mean, think about it. Think about where your life is today after coming to Christ, after being united with Christ, by faith, justified, counted righteousness. Are you perfect? No. Neither is anybody else out there. I used to have this image, especially of certain preachers in my mind, that I just I held these guys up on such a pedestal. And the, the problem is, this is why they say never meet your heroes, is you start hanging around with these guys very long and you realize that they are very flawed, ordinary individuals. It's all of us. We're just, none of us are there. But oh, we're so much further than we were. We're, tr we're transformed in the image. Paul said we're transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. In other words, it's incremental. It's I'm not quite like Jesus today, and in some areas I'm really not like Jesus today, but I'm a lot more like Him in certain areas than I used to be. And I have a full expectation that in six months, in a year, in five years, that I'll be a whole lot more like Jesus than I am today. It's constant growth. It's sanctification. It's Christian maturity. It's growing in grace. That's us who are united with Christ. But there are still blind people. And money and success doesn't open up blind eyes. Morality, good morals, doesn't save you. It doesn't let you see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Religion doesn't open blind eyes. We need a move of God that shines the gospel into broken marriages and abusive relationships and broken people in general. That's what will save and transform people. It's Isaiah 6 and 7. The light coming, healing coming, spiritual healing coming to people who are spiritually blind. We need the light of the gospel to shine into drug addiction and people who are suicidal and people who are at the end of their rope. The only hope for all of this is the gospel. And the spiritual apathy that exists today has our world paralyzed the spiritual blindness that is causing I'll say it again a dystopian nightmare in our world the gospel is the only hope and at the end of it he says God will do a new thing among us and what I pray is that God will do a new thing among us that thank God for where we've been thank God for what he's done but I'm not dwelling in the past God, where do you want to take us from here? What are you going to do from this point on? The, the one thing that God never allowed anybody to do 
was to change their past, to go back and relive, go back in time. God does a lot of miracles in the Old Testament. The, the sun stands still, they get extra daylight to fight the battle, but nobody gets to actually go backward in time and fix things. So we don't live there. We just simply don't dwell in the past. And that is, it is one of the biggest challenges, especially for people who have a, a past and we all have a past. Everybody has a past. So it's so hard for us because we allow the past of who we were to define who we are today rather than allowing the new identity that we have in Christ, the new creature, the new man, the new woman that we are in Christ to say, that's not my identity. My identity is the person that I am today in Christ. My pastor used to say, I will walk back with you in my life to a certain point before I came to Christ. He said, I will not walk back one day past that. I won't discuss it. He goes, I will not walk back there with anybody. He goes, that's my line. I think it's a healthy way to live. The next thing that is promised in the song of Isaiah is that God's spirit would be poured out. So let's read that together. Isaiah 44. This is the next song. Just five verses of Scripture. So in Isaiah 44, But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. If you think about how often, repeatedly, especially in the Gospel of John, that the analogy of water is used for the outpouring of the spirit. They're drawing much of this language from the Old Testament. Not just Isaiah, Ezekiel as well, but here Isaiah. Pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another, another will write on his hand the Lord's and the name himself and name himself by the name of Israel. So this is a promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So I, I talked about this last week. I think it bears repeating to some extent. If you ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit? You've already gone off track. Because the Holy Spirit is not a what. The Holy Spirit is a who. The Holy Spirit is not one-third of God. The church historically has always confessed that the Holy Spirit is fully God. The Holy Spirit is the person of God that proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He is the person of God who proceeds from the Father and the Son. I'll give you two passages that uphold what I just said. Acts 2. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. So God is the one that raises Jesus. And of that, we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he's speaking of Christ, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, the he is Jesus in this sentence, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So it's the day of Pentecost. People are speaking in four languages, known languages, but languages that all these people from around the world are assembling together. It's the first instance of the outpouring of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's people that are mocking, saying they're drunk. They're making fun of this event. And Peter said, they're not drunk. And he goes into this sermon in Acts chapter 2, and he tells them what has going on. He says, so this Jesus, who is the center of Acts 2, the, the conversation, Jesus that you crucified, God the Father has raised up again. Jesus has ascended into the heavens. He sits at the right hand of the Father. The Father has given the promise of the Holy Spirit to Jesus. And what you're seeing today is what Jesus has poured out upon all of you. It's exactly I don't even really have to paraphrase that. That's just what's being said in verse 33. Peter is making this known what is going on. My second passage for who the Holy Spirit is. Jesus says in John 15, but when the Helper, now the Helper here is he's referring to the, the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So again, Jesus is saying exactly what Acts 2.33 is saying. This is what the Holy Spirit is. It's the Spirit of truth. It's God Himself who is being sent forth by the Father. Now, we are approaching the, the Christmas season, and I know that it kind of bleeds over into Thanksgiving, and I don't like to, I think Thanksgiving doesn't always get its just due because of what happens with the Christmas season. But it's coming upon us. And our world, even us as believers, we fail to see because it's so common to us. We fail to really stop and wonder and be in awe of what we're celebrating. So last night, I sat down, I said, how can I capture this in one sentence? It's a long sentence, but I did it in one sentence. I guess you could keep putting commas forever, uh, but this is, so th this is my best attempt to capture this. Stop and think about what it means for the transcendent God to cause a woman to become pregnant with a man who is the Son of God, the Ancient of Days, and for that man to walk among us for 33 years give His life for us, rise from the dead, ascend into the heavens, be seated at the right hand of His Father, and send His Holy Spirit to dwell not just among us, but within us. That is an awesome reality. The, the transcendent God of this universe. I mean... The first time that I heard a preacher say that there are more stars in the universe 
than words ever spoken by every human being who has ever lived. I said, oh, I know it's big, but I, I wonder where you got that fact from. And I, I think that you're normally better at fact-checking before you say something that's going to be heard by potentially millions of people because of your audience. So I went and did my homework and found out he's absolutely right. That is a true statement. There are more stars in our universe than words ever spoken by every human being who ever lived. We can't wrap our head around that kind of size and, and the, the distance then. That, that's what we mean by transcendent, this God that is above. Like He is the ultimate reality of the universe that causes all of that to happen. You don't even have to get into the, into the minutia of how He did it. Just let's say he, we all agree He did that. He is the ultimate first cause of everything in the universe. So big and so majestic and so holy, I cannot wrap my head around what that looks like. And for that God to say, I'm going to come and dwell among you. I'm going to walk as a very ordinary man. That is an incredible. There is no other religion in the world that makes that sort of audacious claim. Because if it weren't true, who would try to claim something like that? But that's the foundation of who we are as a people. And if you are in union with Christ by faith, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit that after the Son of God ascends, He sends His Spirit back. And that Holy Spirit doesn't just dwell among us. He's not just by us. He dwells in us as a temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's God's nature, which is spirit, and His most fundamental attribute, which is holiness, manifested in the lives of people who have believed the good news of Jesus. Another prophet in the Old Testament, Joel 2. And it shall come to pass, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit is poured out for the first time in Acts 2, Peter, who was soaked in the Scriptures, recognizes what's going on. He sees it for what it is. And when they mock and say that these are filled with new wine, they're drunk, he said, no, actually this is what Joel talked about in Joel 2. And he actually quotes verbatim, he quotes Joel chapter 2 and says, this is that that the prophet Joel spoke about. In the last days I will pour out my spirit. What you're seeing in Acts 2 is the fulfillment of what Joel 2 prophesied. And there is such a need for an awakening of the work of the Holy Spirit. There is already a supernatural revival from hell. That's already going on. The Apostle Paul said that the sign of the Antichrist will be even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. In Revelation 16, when the sixth vial is poured out, John sees unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets. And John said, they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle of the great day of God Almighty. And if you study Ephesians 2, you will find that Paul teaches that the powers of darkness are actively at work so there are spiritual forces at work in people today who are dead in their trespasses and sin, and Paul calls them 
the sons of disobedience. There is a demonic realm, and it is at work in our world. And you only need to read the, the news to see it at work today, actively in the sons of disobedience who make headlines daily because they too are spirit-filled. They're just filled with another spirit. So we as the people of God, we are spirit-filled also. And where we once walked in darkness, now we walk in light. So Paul says, among whom also we also had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. We are spirit-filled, spirit-led, Spirit-driven, spirit-seeking men and women of the kingdom. And God's Spirit, if we allow it to fill our lives, to go into every area of our lives, and not just say, the Holy Spirit is here for the religious, spiritual side of me, but it's not related to my marriage or my finances or my vocation or my relationships or the major decisions I have in life, you're cheating yourself out of a great blessing from God because the Holy Spirit wants to infiltrate every area of your life so that He exalts, this is what Jesus talks about, the role of the Holy Spirit is, is to magnify Christ. So the Holy Spirit's role in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, to exalt Christ to a place where Christ is number one in every single area of your life. That is the definition of how not to be an idolater. None of us here today and I, I use this analogy all the time, but it's what comes to mind because it's 10 minutes from here is this yard and saxy of, uh, I tried to count them the other day. I was counting the rows like across, just trying to do quick math. And like, there's a, I think there's at least 100 little Buddha statues. They're not little, they're giant Buddha statues that are in this front yard of this business. And I never know how many they're selling because they all look alike. So if somebody comes today and buys five, if they replenish them tomorrow, you just don't know. You'd think they could get some variety there. Like, I think there'd be some allowance for creativity. Like, if I was Buddhist, I think I'd want, like, a little different Buddha than what my neighbor has. But I don't know. Um, I'm not Buddhist. So. But I don't think any of us are in danger today of going and buying a statue and um, worshiping that statue. But oh, we are guilty. We can be guilty, all of us. It was John Calvin that said the heart is a perpetual idol factory. It does such a good job of being efficient and just cranking out idols. Anything to usurp the position of Christ is number one in our lives. God, help us to live lives where Jesus is first in every single area of our life. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us in greater understanding of His nature and His words. God's Spirit is what empowers us to be witnesses unto a lost and broken people. We must have the working of the Holy Spirit inside of us. We need that anointing of the Spirit. Talent without anointing only causes the flesh to look good. And it allows flesh to glory in the presence of God. And God hates that. He said, no flesh will glory in my presence. Talent under the anointing 
says, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Look at King Jesus. Don't look at me. The anointing always draws attention from self and puts it to the person of Christ. Be filled with the Spirit of God. I used to, you know, I got to play, I got to play drums at least once, a lot of times two or three times a week. I got to play drums for 24 years in church with an incredible band, classically trained piano player, phenomenal bass and guitar players. I mean, we jammed, we went at it, and it was fun. You, you think about it, you get to go to church like every Sunday and what your job is to get in the drum cage and just, just jam. I mean, just play the fire out of those things. I got to do that for 24 years. There would be times where I'd almost feel guilty. I'm like, is this really what it's... And so what I'd do, I'd be, I'd be there and I'd, I'd be playing and I'd say, okay, Lord, um, every flam, every triplet, every 16th note triplet, every ghost note, every paradiddle, every double stroke, every single stroke is to your glory. I'm going to ride the bell of that ride cymbal. I'm going to syncopate it on one and three, but I'm doing it to your glory. And I'd have to think that way. They used to have a saying that the top two people in a church that backslid were drummers and sound men. And it tended to be true. Because you could get yourself so alienated, especially if you were in a cage with plexiglass around you and so on. It's just, you know, everything that's done must be done for God's glory. Being spirit-filled isn't just about being used by God. It's being empowered to be more like Jesus. Spirit-filled means loving your neighbor, forgiving those who offend you, and giving glory to God, and you not getting the credit because no flesh should glory in His presence. I have a part three to this. I will have to save for another time for time's sake. Uh, it's the next, the third song in Isaiah that we'll have to save for another time. But I want us to see this morning, Isaiah promised the suffering servant who is Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. And I hope that what we've seen about Christ Maybe a little different way. I think we've seen Christ in a little different way this morning in Isaiah. And that's what I love about the scriptures is it's a thousand points of light. We're always seeing Christ in new and glorious ways in the scriptures. Let's stand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as your word has went forth, you anointed your prophet not just to write truth, but to write truth in a beautiful and poetic and magisterial way that it's not just wrote facts, but you've inspired the writers of scriptures to soar and to write in ways that enrapture us with joy and fill our hearts with hope. So Lord, as we approach this season we enter into a week of thanksgiving before we enter into a month of celebrating your first advent, your first coming. Lord, it's only proper that we take this time to give praise and thanksgiving as a people. Lord, that we honor you today, that our hearts overflow with thankfulness and gratefulness 
for who you are, for what you've done in our lives, for the transformation that you've given us, for all the blessings. We look around the world today, even sitting today, the, the scores of uh, men and women and children who even right now sit as hostages and captives uh, on the other side of the world. These, these Jews, we, we pray for them this morning. We ask you, Lord, that, uh, that you would just do a miracle there and set them free. Our hearts, our hearts mourn in this situation. But that is just one example of the men and women and children around this world who are suffering uh, disease, poverty, war, famine, relational, family, struggles, abuse. There is so much out there, Lord, that if it doesn't touch our lives, we don't think about. But Lord, for those of us who are living lives that are free and while not perfect, they're full of joy and, and happiness and, and life is just pretty good. Lord, we don't take credit for those things. We give you the praise for that. Everything good that happens to us, we turn around and we say we are grateful to God for all of those things. So Lord, I ask you this morning, during this week, that you'd bless everyone that is here as, as we separate and go our different ways, uh, that you would bless the time of family this during Thanksgiving, Lord, and that your spirit would be near among us and upon us, and that you would draw us back next week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning.